And I mean that with all sincerity, riveting episode of Life of Brian, dot, 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 Mannix, that is, with the star of our show, the one, the only, from the Gold Coast penthouse, Brian Mannix. Well, thanks, Kev. Um, I, I'm glad it's a riveting show. Because riveting. I don't think I'm going to be quite riveting today. Um, I don't feel riveting at all. I have a team of people who are about to descend upon the balcony of the uh, Gold Coast penthouse and rivet you, so you'll be right. You'll be, <laughs> you'll be, you'll oh. be fixed up. Actually, I'm hanging for a rivet. I haven't had a rivet for a while. So. <laughs> Long time between rivets. <laughs> yeah, there uh, you go. And we've got another great show, all, of course, as per usual, thanks to our terrific uh, friends at Murcott's Driving Excellence. We're inching towards Christmas. We're inching towards some uh, gift certificates being available and some special offers, so keep your eye on their website, murcotts.edu.au, for all those details. They're coming very soon. Now, how did Mark feel about your slogan that you... I came up with last week, was it? He's, don't don't crash and drive or something. Well, you know, crash free crash free driving is what we're crash after. Crash free driving, yeah, that's well, what we want. Yeah. We, well, I won't say he hasn't returned my course because I haven't put any into him because I wasn't game. <laughs> we'll, see, <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> no, it wasn't our best, yeah, but Mark, anyway, Mark's a good uh, Mark's a good scout, and they're terrific people at Murcotts. They will look after you. They will make sure that the people that uh, that you care about are driving as good as they possibly can. They'll they'll help them out with that. And that makes the world a better place for everybody. Certainly does. Now, we have part two of Stuart Cook. Uh, hold on a second, Kevin. What? Well, what, do I do? what if they want to phone up Murcotts to book a ticket? To well, book I, a- I, reckon, I reckon you could I reckon you could say that name in your sleep. That number could, well, would come up in your sleep. And it that does. Name. It does. If you'd like to, give them a call, see what sort of deals you can do, get a gift voucher for your nephew or whoever, call this number. One three hundred triple five five seven six. Here it is again, Kev. One three hundred triple five five seven six. Crash free podcasting, we call it, and uh, we're 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 doing it as best we possibly can. Now we have part two of Stuart Coop, interesting bloke, great book called Shake Some Action. Uh, some yeah. amazing stories. We we went through some of those last week. We're going to get the second part of our chat with Stuart and the people that he did get to interview and the ones he, he didn't get to interview and how he, how he feels about those. And also his uh, his meetings with you, Mr Mannix. Yes, yes. Um, I make a, a brief cameo in, in the story. Exactly yeah. right. Uh, and talk uh, about uh, touring the, the USA with the Hoodoo Gurus and Paul Kelly and all that stuff. So that's that's all coming up. And then uh, after that, Jimmy Webb uh, is about to do a couple of big shows here uh, early December, the 7th of December in Melbourne, the 10th of December in Sydney at the recital halls in both those two cities. Uh, this is a man who's written some of the most beautiful and captivating songs in music history. Well, perhaps you could name a few of them, kids, who are uh, p- p- listeners that aren't too orfe with the Wonderful work of the web slinger, Jimmy, Jimmy Webb. <laughs> By the time I get to Phoenix, Wichita Lineman, Galveston, MacArthur Park, didn't we? Worst that could happen is just five that roll straight off my tongue as songs that I, I think are absolutely breathtaking in their, uh, in their brilliance. 
Yeah, no, I agree. Um, MacArthur Park, I don't know, maybe it was just Richard Harris's version of it. But um, It's a most interesting song. It's a really, really, in fact, uh, Jimmy's biography is called The Cake and the Rain uh, for that very reason because of, uh, the thing people always ask him about is, is MacArthur Park and he talks about it in the show. Um, we didn't talk about it here in the uh, in the interview that I did with him. We talked about a whole lot of other stuff, but a uh, really interesting chat with Jimmy. I thoroughly well, enjoyed it and so did he. My understanding is that the... The cake represents marijuana, I said, or he built a marijuana cake or something. I'll talk to and Jimmy then, about it when he comes to Australia. We'll discuss and it. Then, and then it gets wet, and then it's, ah, oh, the grass is no good. Damn. Right. I can't afford any more. That's the way I interpreted it. But, you know, that's probably totally wrong. It could very well be of enhanced by some sort of uh, chemical uh, activity as well. Who knows, Brian? Well... We'll have to find out. Well, we'll find out uh, more about Stuart Coop. His book is called Shake Some Action. He's a great character, one of the characters of the Australian music industry. So let's get to part two of the chat we had with him. Okay. What, what's, uh, your, what's your favourite part? I mean, you've done everything. You've been a publicist. You mentioned, you know, being on the road literally as a publicist for the Dylan tour. You've, you've started your own record label. You've managed bands. You've, you've uh, you know, written uh, as a rock journalist into crime fiction at a million miles an hour. Have you got, have you got something that sort of floats your boat more than all the others? Uh, look, I, I spent a number of years being Australia's most unsuccessful concert promoter, um, but... <laughs> There is a uh, the thing that thrills me most is is still the beginning of a live, um, particularly if I'm lucky enough to be backstage. I no, no, I still get chills watching, you know, in that moment, um, and it can be a pub show or it can be a, a big concert when you know the stage lights have gone down. There's torches backstage. There's, you know, a roar emanating from the audience and people in semi-darkness make their way onto a stage and then everything erupts. Um, nothing quite beats that for me still. I still get chills every time, you know, I'm I'm around that because it's such, um, it's such an exhilarating... Um, moment that encapsulates like everything that's so thrilling about rock and roll, you know, that interaction between audience and performer, you know, and that precarious knife edge that, you know, Brian, you know all about is like, you know, well, you know what if the drum kit topples over the first time someone hits it? You know, what happens if the amplifier starts emitting smoke? You know, all of that thing all yeah. of that go wrong. And it's it's that very. I mean, I love the ends, but I, I of shows, but I but I particularly like that expectation and that that moment when things things start. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, how did you come to write a Craig McLaughlin bio? Um, we. I was uh, in those days. It was the Edge magazine, and and it was a publication that was ahead of its time, and it was struggling. And uh, I did a. I mean, I wrote a. I wrote a, a little book on poison. Yeah, that's me. Poison. Uh, <laughs> one-off books uh, about people that were big. You know, I did a Motley Crue book, uh, a U two one. You know, they, they were small publications. Um, you know, in newsstands. Uh, you know, a big poster in the middle, 24 pages of text. I did a Johnny Diesel and the Injectors one. 
Uh, and and part of that was I got asked to write because Craig at that point had uh, check one two and uh, the, and this was quite a more substantial one. I you know, but it was, still wasn't big. You know, I was also asked to do a Jason Donovan one, but I couldn't. And so my friend Barry Devola did that one. So we were really just gun for hires. And um, so so yes, on my my list of publications is uh, an authorised Craig McLaughlin book, which yeah, was probably about 19, 1987, 1980, yeah. a, a, a long time ago. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's what you do as a freelance journalist um, when you're trying to make ends meet. I mean, there was a period when twisties, every packet of twisties had twisted facts on the packet, bizarre facts. They were written by me. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Thirty dollars a twisted fact. It was a good. It was a good earn. Um, basically, involved getting the Guinness Book of Records and going. Yes, you know this is the fastest um, hundred meters run by you know a three-legged marsupial or something like that. You know anything that basically <laughs> as a a twisted fact. So you know you you did you you had to do all sorts of. Um, you know, random, unpredictable. You know, freelancers. You know, you t- you take work where you can you can find it. And so, yeah, I've done twisted facts. I've done Craig McLaughlin. I've done poison. I've done them. <laughs> just, uh, just, just one thing. Um, you toured. You were managing the Hoodoo Gurus, and you toured America with them. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me what touring America? Because I've never done it, and but. What was touring America like? Is it ridiculously difficult or what happened? Oh, it's it's tough work. I mean, I toured a lot with Paul because we, we were in America a lot. Um, you know, I would go to America in those days five or six times a year and the, the, we did a, a hell of a, a lot of, of, of road work in America. The Gurus only worked with them for that first American tour. Look, imagine... Um, imagine driving up and down, Brian, as you have done many times, the human... Yeah. Uh, with all of your nearest and dearest and every bit of equipment you need in a very small vehicle. And in the case of the Huda Gurus on that tour, we did 42, I didn't go on at all, uh, we did 42 shows in 44 days. Oh, my God. Wow. We started in LA. I know we did a lunchtime at Santa Barbara University. We cut back down to Albuquerque. We went through Kansas City. We went up to Chicago where we played a show with the church. Um, and I'm wondering why I didn't run into Kilby there or maybe we just ignored each other. Uh, <laughs> And then down to Boston, into New York, where we headlined at the Ritz, um, and uh, and then basically wound our way back to Los Angeles. So, look, it's the sort of thing that you know has a great deal of glamour and romance and a hell of a lot of hard work, and you you will put up with it once in the same ways. You know, I remember when I started managing the Huda Gurus. I said to them, they were going back to, well, some of them came from Perth and I, they were going back to play in Perth. And I said, look, you, you're going to drive. And they hated me. Why are we Why are you driving from Sydney to Perth? And I said, because if you do it once, you're really going to appreciate your air tickets after that. 
And I said, if you fly right from the start, you know, you're going to be wanting to travel business class and first class after that. Do it so that you know how hideously horrible it is. You know, they hit Kalgoorlie with a huge hair, hair sprayed up. You know, people were, you know, families were crossing the road to not be on the same side of the street as Brad Shepard. And... Um, <laughs> children and uh and they they did it once and and it's the same with america you know it's it's all new it's all fantastic uh it's hideously hard work you know when i was doing it with paul kelly you know we were we were in a in a for most of those tours we were in a a tour bus but you know the romance of sleeping with you know eight or 12 people in a bus going through the middle of the night you know it, it wears off really quickly you know i was i was remembering the other day that peter bull the keyboard player it was his job to load everything that was not consumed from the backstage ride into green garbage bags and haul them onto the onto the bus so every bit of available undrunk booze and every bit from the uh, every sandwich and cold cut and everything we could find onto the bus we had a daiquiri mixer on the bus and um <laughs> It sounds terrific, but you know that it's you know you you go in, you're in this cocoon type existence where the, you know you don't. People say to me, you know, what was it like going to you know, for instance, San Diego? Yes, I've been to San Diego. I have absolutely no idea what San. I didn't get to go to the San Diego Zoo or do anything. We pulled up at the back of a venue. We yeah. did a check. We played a gig. We got back in the bus and drove 12 hours to the next town. I remember actually having an altercation with two members of that band in the car park um, outside the venue in San Diego because they had befriended two uh, new best friends and they were most keen on spending the night in San Diego. And... I had the unfortunate task as band manager to say we're not staying in San Diego and they're not coming on the bus because <laughs> it's going to be a long way away and it was it was somewhat heated. Um, but, you know, it's it's what you have to, have to do um, and, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard work. It's hard, hard work, especially, you know, if, if if a band is having an upward trajectory and they've moved from, you know, a minivan to a big bus to then they start flying and the venues are increasing and everything's propelling itself along, that's a little bit different. But when you're on your 10th tour, you know, and you're going, why are we doing this? You know, um, you know. Hello, Ames, Iowa. Are you ready to rock? You know, she <laughs> yes is uh, is it diminishes fairly quickly. But uh, I don't regret doing doing any of it. But of course, as a manager, you know, I, I didn't spend as much time on the road with these bands as you probably would these days because. Uh, of course, you know, when we were touring America, you know, they hadn't even invented fax machines, let alone, you know, we were still using telexes, uh, let alone mobile telephones. So, you know, as a manager, I tended to plonk myself, poor me, you know, in either Los Angeles or New York or somewhere where I could I could work as opposed to being pretty much out of out of commission, you know, on, on a bus or in a van. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You mentioned we've mentioned Springsteen, we've mentioned Jagger, we've mentioned Dylan. 
Who didn't you get that you wanted to get? Elvis. Um, I would have loved to have interviewed Elvis. I've interviewed all of the TCB band. Um, Look, Elvis, I would have liked to um, have interviewed. I would have liked to. uh, I would have loved to. I mean, I'm, I'm a Grateful Dead tragic. You know, I would have loved to have interviewed Jerry Garcia. Uh, I would have liked to have interviewed Aretha Franklin. Um, you know, look, there's, there's, look, I've done, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, but there's still, you know, a, a multitude of of people that I would have, um, you know, I, I never never spoke to a Beatle. Um, Paul, when you come out, I'm available. Um, you get, know, in, I have, get in line, Coop. <laughs> I have spoken to... I almost interviewed Paul McCartney, and and it was a one of the funniest things that uh, that happened in my career. I I I was offered an interview with McCartney, and McCartney's people said that um, that McCartney and his management had to have veto of whatever story I wrote. And I went to my editor at the Sun Herald, and I said, "Hey, here's the deal: we can interview Paul McCartney, have an interview with Paul McCartney, but they want a, they want a final say on on what's run." And and my editor wrote back saying, "We can't agree to this. Um, even the Australian Prime Minister doesn't make such demands on, at that stage, what was the biggest selling newspaper in Australia." And McCartney's people, magnificently, I must say, wrote back and said, Prime Ministers, come and go. There is only one Paul McCartney, no. <laughs> wow. And I well, thought that, that was genius level. So so therefore I've never never interviewed Paul McCartney. Uh, so, yes, look, I would have loved to have interviewed, you know, he or, or Lennon. You know, there's lots of them that still fascinate uh, and and intrigue me. But you know, I've been incredibly fortunate with with the people that I have spoken to. Yeah, bloody hell. Well, I'll ask you what you asked Bob Dylan. What would you ask Elvis if he was sitting in the room? Who's in here now? What would you ask him? Oh golly, I mean, it's well. I mean, I'd probably ask him where he got his drugs from. Where he got the drugs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we know it was dick in most cases. Uh, so. Yeah. The answer to that question. Oh, look, I, you know, I would be most interested, I think, with Elvis to explore his relationship with Colonel Tom Parker. Because, you know, I actually think that that Parker is much maligned. Uh, and, you know, Parker, you know, even in the recent movie, you know, is painted as the bad guy, the bad manager. Mm. Uh, and I sort of subscribe to the fact that Colonel Tom Parker was probably close to a genius, uh, and you know he was protecting his artist and uh, and doing what um, you know a good manager should do. That may be wrong, um, and I would be interested um, in you know when I interviewed the TCB band, one of them one of them said that you know they remember a time when Elvis you know talked back to the Colonel and told him it was something to do with the the uh, the the sixty eight comeback concert. you know Elvis had a vision for how that was going to go. Uh, but you know I'd be interested just to explore the relationship between those two. you know you'd want to ask Elvis how how complicit he was and how much he enjoyed that. Endless period in in Las Vegas, you know. You, you, I mean, there's a million things you'd want to ask Elvis Presley. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When you sat down to start working on this, and I know it wasn't your idea; it was uh, someone else's idea. But did did you think it would work out to be that you had you'd had such an interesting life when you look back on it now? 
Not until I started writing it. Yeah. You know, I I kind of I went, is it really that interesting? Um, and so as it, as as the process rolled on. I went, wow, you've done a bit, Guy. Um, but really the the publisher's interest in it was more an, about a kid growing up dreaming of doing this stuff, you know, growing up in a small town uh, because, you know, every, every, every music journalist, every radio personality, everyone has war stories. And, uh, and I remember yeah. my publisher saying, look, you know, we want those in the book, but we want a book about you as a kid who sat in Launceston imagining, you know, in your wildest dreams, interviewing Neil Young and Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen and, and all that and 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 actually doing so. And so, you know, and and the most enjoyable stuff for me is is writing about being a music fan. So there was that. And then at one point they the, my editor said, you know, who reshaped the book, uh, he said, look, you know, what what is interesting to me, and I had a, an absolutely brilliant editor, he said, what is interesting to me is how, you know, he said you deserve an honorary jugglers award um, for managing to keep at certain times 87 balls in the air at one time. You know, you're travelling America managing an artist, you're filing newspaper columns, Dolly magazine stories, you're doing this, you're doing you're doing that. And um, so 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 that that's a component of the book and um and i think it it reflects someone who you know i mean nick kent recently was asked you know about his career and, and he said um right place right time wrong drugs uh my drugs were different to nick kent's but you know it was i was in, you know i always have to think kevin how lucky have I been, you know, working incredibly hard, of course, um, but really considering it hard work because I've loved it so much and continue to love it and just doing, you know, sometimes I'd go, oh, golly, do I have to write another column? Do I have to do another radio show? Oh, golly, do I have to look at another worksheet, um, you know, before a gig? And then you stop yourself and you just go, hey, guy, there's a lot of alternatives and they're not nearly as much fun as as this. You know, get over yourself. <laughs> have, uh, have your parts ever crossed, you and Brian, at any stage? Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. Uh, and, in fact, the last time we talked, I could put Brian on the spot and uh, and ask if he remembers. Uh, uh, you can hear Possibly. Possibly. Uh, I don't know. No. Last time was when uh, when you had written your very excellent book, Brian, and uh, and I was uh, outside the ABC in Harris Street in Ultimo, and you were rehearsing for some show, whether it was a Queen show or something, and I was with Richard Clapton, and uh, uh, yeah. we had a conversation uh, about books and book publishing, and then I remember going off with Richard, and I said, "We've all got books out at the moment." Only one of us is smart. And I said, I've got bad news for you, Richard. It's not you and it's not me. Uh, <laughs> I said, semi young Mannix, um, who, who decided to, after having a publishing deal, if I get this correctly, Brian, um, yep. not the established publisher because he had a vision for the sort of book that he wanted to write and and, and a much bigger book than what he, what the company was prepared to do. 
And he did it himself and he did a spectacular job of marketing himself and it's really funny and it's a doorstop and he made more <laughs> Yes, yeah, he- I made more, more money doing it myself than I would have if I'd sold 10,000 with the publisher. So, um, yes. yeah, but it's full of spelling mistakes and bad grammar. But anyway, we fixed it on the uh, the uh, electronic version of it. But um yeah, but, um, yeah, that was one of the things I found about writing a book about yourself is that it's not really a very healthy thing to do because I found that, you know, I relived everything that was just bad that had happened to me. And, you know, the, with the good parts, you sort of go, you relive them and it's great. But I don't know that it's really good for the mind to be travelling forward and looking in the revision mirror and... I found writing a book a bit like that. I don't know that I'd do it again because I found it, you know, quite at times quite um, upsetting. And you know, I thought, you know, I'd forgotten about this shit. And then when you go back and do it, it sort of digs it all up again. And um, so, yeah, I don't know that writing your uh, biography is for everybody because it it can upset you. I found anyway. I don't know if you did. Yeah, look, it, it causes certainly, you know, retrospection and you, and you look at at things, you know, you should have done differently, would have done differently. Uh, you know, I, certainly in my case, I looked at the effect it had on my children, you know, because I was wound up in, in work, 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 and, and a lot of those things that, um, you know, from my point of view, you know, they were tough to confront, some of the things, um, mm. but... I, I, you know, when I looked at my drinking and drug taking and stuff, um, I, I don't regret the experience despite there being certain times when I go, ooh, ooh, yeah, that happened, that happened, that happened. Um, but there's also, there's also something weird about writing a memoir because I go, well, you know, I'm only 66, you know, well, 67 in September, but I'm going, you know, I'm hoping, I'm hoping there's a few more interviews and a few more radio shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I finished mine by saying, and there's still there's a whole lot more adventures still to come. <laughs> yeah, we, like that, anyway. we we hope so. <laughs> yeah, know. we hope so. Hey, yeah. this is uh, this is a pretty good first sixty-seven or sixty-six and a bit years. Uh, uh, well chronicled and uh, and congratulations and well done. Yeah, thank you. Good work. And thank you, Brian. Great to talk to you both. There's the uh, little bit of the Huda Gurus, A Thousand Miles, uh, some of the travels around the world with Stuart Coop. Check that book out. It's well worth having a read of. Shake Some Action. He's a very good writer and uh, has a radio show uh, too that you can have a listen to. Uh, good fella. Good catch yeah, up. Yeah, no, that. very interesting guy and um, lived a very interesting life. You yeah, know? He has. And, a, and there's still plenty more adventures still to come. 
Absolutely. Now, Jimmy Webb, as I mentioned at the top of the show, is a man who's written some of the uh, the great songs. So uh, we're going to uh, play the interview that I did with Jimmy. He's coming out here on the 10th of December in Sydney at the Recital Hall in Melbourne on the 7th, and tickets are available through Ticket Tech. Uh, I had the chance to catch up with him. It was another early morning one, Brian, so you weren't in this one. Um, but just by way of introduction, let's have a listen to some of the great songs that he's written, and then I'll have a chat to him. Yeah, all right. I'm a lineman for the county And I drive the main road Searching in the sun for another overload I hear you singing in the wire Jimmy, how are you? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. Now, you're about to do these shows in Australia. Right? The, the thing that uh, immediately comes to mind is how do you sit down and what process do you go through to work out what the set list is because you've got such an expansive catalogue of material to, to share with <laughs> us? Well, that's very generous of you. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, people come to... Uh, you know, be amazed by the incredible number of hits that I've written. No, <laughs> that actually, actually being serious. But people do come uh, to hear songs that, that are familiar to them. But, um, you know, I reserve the right to play a new song every once in a while, play something by another writer. I, I, I recently done a a, an album of piano arrangements, and so, and I recorded everybody: Billy Joel, Warren Zevon, uh, Paul Simon, Paul McCartney, 
it's all without vocal, no singing. So there, I, I've been playing a Billy Joel song in my show called "Good Night, My Darling." Oh yeah, lovely song. Uh, oh, you know, you know it. Yeah, it's, so, the, it's the song he wrote uh, for Alexa's daughter, I think, from memory. Yes, that, yes, that's exactly right. And he's a neighbor and and a friend. So I, uh, I sometimes, you know, I, I do uh, the Barry Man Cynthia Wilde song, You've Lost That Loving Feeling. And uh, Cynthia died not long ago. So I've been doing it with the audience. The audience loves to sing it, and I love to play it. So every once in a while, we just have a light moment, break away from the, the I mean, so predictably maudlin Jimmy Webb, you know, <laughs> repertoire. Oh, it's hardly. <laughs> um, uh, you, uh, the famous relationship between yourself and Glenn Campbell, I mean, it started when you were a 14-year-old and you, your first record that you bought was a Glenn Campbell song. Did you, when you, when you and Johnny Rivers recorded Phoenix before before Glenn did. Yes. Did, did after that happened and, and Glenn recorded Phoenix and it became, you know, record of the year and, and all those things that happened with that song, did you start to, to write with Glenn's voice in your head when you were writing songs, or does that is that the process that you well, never go through? Well, the truth is, truth is, uh, you know, stranger than fiction. But uh, when I was fourteen years old, I was driving a tractor out in the middle of a wheat field, listening to a transistor radio, and I heard Glenn's first record. It was a song by Jerry Capehart. It was called "Turn Around, Look at Me," and. It was Glenn's first hit, but it wasn't enough to sort of pop him into the national limelight. But I now I'm only 14 years old, but I hear this man singing. I stop the tractor. I get down on my knees and say, God, let me meet this man. Let me write songs for this Glenn Campbell. I mean, um, that's the truth, so help me. And um, so I think I was always writing Glenn Campbell's songs in the back of my mind because one of these days I said to myself, hmm. <laughs> I'm going to get, I'm going to meet Glenn Campbell. Well, you know, insanely, uh, because this, this shouldn't have happened. There's no way that it they really could have happened. But five years later, I, I was in Hollywood and Glenn Campbell was, was on the radio singing my song. And and it was Johnny Rivers that that gave him the song. By the way, yep, I'm a massive fan of Johnny Rivers' work. I think he's he's much underrated in uh, in in many parts of the world. Summer Rain is uh, for me just one of the great classics. He did Phoenix uh, and a, and a number of your songs. Was he kind of, and you were signed to his publishing company? How did how did that sort of happen? I was at Motown and uh, he had heard of me. Uh, I get, my songs weren't necessarily the thing that Motown was looking for. In fact, when they when we parted company, they sent me they sent with me. By the time I get to Phoenix, they said, "Take this. We'll never record this up up and away. We'll never record that." Oh, um, uh, didn't we take that? And they gave me a whole list of you know basically hits and. Uh, so I, I, it was very amicable. They gave me an education, man. They, they, they loved me. They took care of me. I hated to leave there. And when I left, I took a few kids with me called the Versatiles, who eventually became the Fifth Dimension. Uh, so I went over to Johnny Rivers Music, 
and started working with that group, working with them. And I was stunned when after recording, by the time we get to Phoenix, Johnny Rivers called Glenn Campbell and Al DeLore and said, come over because I want to play my test pressing for you and I want you to pick a song. And that was the, the love, the relationship that he had with Glenn from years before. So, you know, all of these things are powered by relationships, by, uh, by love, by uh, the sincere desire to help others. And I would be in the position I'm in to play all those hits if it hadn't been for an awful lot of people along the way yeah. who said, oh, well, let's give, you, let's give Jimmy a chance with this, or Jimmy might be good for this. I mean, it's a whole village of people, really. Yeah. From our Truth is Stranger Than Fiction department, is it right that, uh, or is it folklore, that among the first words ever spoken to you by Glenn Campbell were get a haircut? <laughs> That is the absolute truth. <laughs> uh, and, and, he, and he denied it until the day he died. But, he, uh, but he, that's, that's what he said. And I had just come back from the Monterey Pop Festival, so I had long, long hair like John Lennon. Except my, my hair was prettier than John Lennon's. <laughs> but um, I just come back, and I was in my hippie outfit, moccasins, and, you know, like cloth belt, like sort of <laughs> cotton pants. And I I was actually wearing a yak vest that I, <laughs> that, I, that I bought at the Monterey Pop Festival. It hadn't cured out exactly right. There was a distinct odor to it. <laughs> so, so when I walked up to him in the studio, I was his worst nightmare. <laughs> he, he was very... You know, he was very tucked away, Glenn, very tidy and always, you know, coiffured and, and you know, beautiful, you know, tailored jeans and cowboy shirts and everything was tight and, and uh, you know, leather, le stitched leather, you know, handmade boots. And, I mean, he was, one thing he was, was he was, he was in fashion and he was in shape. Yeah. And I just think he looked at me just hoping against hope that it wasn't true that, <laughs> that this wasn't really Jimmy Webb. You know? <laughs> do you um do you consider the 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 songwriting a gift or a job? Uh, how has that manifested for you over the years? Oh no, it's 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 a gift. It's a gift that I asked for. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's something that I started on my own, but realized, you know. Just like I real when I stopped drinking, that I needed help, uh, and I, I I remember praying and saying, you know, send this send this down to me, send this, let me, you know, I I in fact, a person was put in my path, uh, Mrs. Goddard in Oklahoma City, who one day swept all the music off the piano during a lesson and said, I know you're faking it because you're playing your lesson you're using you're playing it by ear because it's not quite right but she said let's get rid of the music and and let's learn to use those wonderful ears and she was a godsend and she she really opened windows for me and 
I think every youngster needs one, one teacher, just one, who will say that magic word, you know, and, and I, the day that she sort of blew the music off and said, let's learn to use those ears. I mean, that was a, a epiphany. Yeah. And, and, and I just took it from there. Once I realized that I could make up these chords and, and these melodies and that I wasn't really constrained by the music. Now, mind you, I was trained as a musician. I can, you know, write parts for orchestra and whatever. Uh, so I was trained, but I haven't used my training as much as I've used my ears. Yeah. I'm at the point now in my 70s where I can hear. I don't, I don't need the piano anymore. I can see it all in my head how it works. What comes first? Is Does the melody come first and the lyrics follow, or, or is it different every time? Well, I met this woman in Las Vegas one time, and she said, you know, I've done it every way you can. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, <laughs> Interesting that, uh, analogy, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that I've done it every way you can. And I, I, uh, you know, I generally speaking, I, 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 work, I work melodies on the piano because that's what I'm really best at. And then I start trying to come up with lyrics. But once I've settled on a lyric, I'll sit down and I'll write the whole lyric. You know, I'll make sure that it's cohesive, that it that it works together, that it's a, that it's actually a song because you know songs have different forms. You have a verse, chorus, verse, chorus. You have a ver- like you've lost that loving feeling. You have a verse, chorus. Then you have a great big kind of um i would call it i guess a a release where billy uh, where uh bill medley and bobby hatfield sort of trade these lines back and forth and then you go back to a verse and a chorus well that's a form yeah so once you have the form you can really buckle down with the old clement wood you know the rhyming dictionary <laughs> and you can really get the you can really shape those words you can get them into shape which is something that I don't think a lot of young writers are doing. Okay. Mind you, I am a cranky old, you know, <laughs> fart, but I still think I'm right. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, okay. I'll, I'll, I think I'm uh, joining that club with you more and more every day. What's a, what's a song? Given that you given that you've written songs like "By the Time I Get to Phoenix" and and "Didn't We" and uh, and Galveston and Wichita Lineman and that beautiful "Worst That Can Happen." What's a song you you wish you'd written? Is there a song you'd wish you'd written? Well, there there are many of them. Uh, you know, I I love um, "Gentle on My Mind" by John Hartford. Uh, yeah, I love "She's Leaving Home" by Lennon, Lennon and McCartney. I love um, I love um, well anything by Rodgers and Hart. I mean, that's that's just a very very special come to my funny Valentine, for instance. Yeah, or um. So World War II songs, I love. My dad used to sing, came home with a silver tone guitar and singing things like uh, I'll Be Seeing You and Harbor Lights and things like that. So, I mean, there, there are so many of them, really. Um, uh, Randy Newman wrote a song called Marie, um, which is on his uh, Rednecks album. I love that song. He writes almost everything tongue-in-cheek, but here is this gym. This heartbreaking gem right out in the middle of this 
uh, like Warren Zevon wrote, Accidentally Like a Martyr, which is an incredibly profound yes. song about love. So these are the things that I sort of hang my hat on. Uh, you know, I play uh, all all my favorite songs on an album called Slipcover. It's at least the first volume. Uh, and they're all piano arrangements. One of them is Billy Joel's uh, Good Night, My Darling. Yeah. That he that he wrote for his daughter, and I just play, I'll play that in the middle of my show, and, and not sing, and uh, and I get a much bigger round of applause than you know when I'm singing. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, that's a very self-effacing uh, representation of your singing ability, there, Jimmy. Does <laughs> is, is music still is, does music still make you get out of bed in the morning and and still drive you the the, the way it did, obviously, in, in you know many years ago when you first started doing this? Well, it's it's still we're we're still driving, but maybe we're not going quite as fast. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that. I, I'm more deliberate about what I do, so I'm thinking more about what what notes I'm I want to choose. I'm sometimes really struggling with chords because that's that's one place where I I'm studying now because I'm trying to increase uh, my knowledge of uh, early 20th century music and the way they use chords because I, that's what I want to use in my song. Yeah. Um, it's just everything I think is more studied and it takes, it, it's not that it just takes more time. It's you take one takes more time yeah. because of the judgmental aspect of, of human nature, which kind of takes over. And you want, you, you can't help thinking, is this another, by the time I get to Phoenix, uh, and a lot of times, sadly, it's not another, by the time I get to Phoenix. <laughs> And the reason is because by the time I get to Phoenix was written from the heart about a woman that was, you know, breaking me in two. And and I'm happily married now. That's that's a problem, you know, because <laughs> I'm I'm happily married, but but it you know it doesn't necessarily make for the dramatic song. Yeah, a miserable um, songwriter is a, a songwriter who's on the move. A, a happily married songwriter is someone who's sitting around going, hmm, what will I write about now? <laughs> I think there's some truth to that, even though my <laughs> wife would say, well, why don't you just write about me? But, <laughs> exactly. and, I, and I do. And I do write about her. I do write about her. Her name's Laura, and I'm working on a song about her, oh, good. Uh, which makes it difficult because there's already a song called Laura. It's pretty, impo pretty important, pretty famous. Yep, there certainly so, is. I mean, those are the things that I think real songwriters think about as they get older. They think about form. They think about actually writing better songs than they did when they were a kid. And sometimes it isn't possible because those songs are inspired. Those songs come from real, you know, heartache and or, or elation, happiness, carefree. I mean, in your 70s, you're just not as carefree as you are in your 20s, let's face it. Yeah, correct. So, I, mean, I, I mean, I like I like to face it. I like to face, you know, what's happening to me. But that doesn't mean that I've given up, and there will be a uh, Jimmy Webb album next year, and then it'll all be new, it'll be new songs. Oh, good. Uh, you know, by an old guy. <laughs> uh, but uh, I haven't quit. 
It's just, I think you become more selective about your decisions. Yeah. Jimmy, I, 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 we've run out of time. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to have a chat with you. And uh, uh, I don't know how you could uh, write any better songs than the ones that you've already written, but keep, keep, keep going at it. It's so kind of you. And I have to tell you before you go that I have an abiding love for Australia and Australians. And uh, for me, this is like a sentimental journey. Any chance I get to go south, go down under. I have a son now who lives in Melbourne. All right. And I have I have three grandchildren that I haven't seen. So it's really going to be quite a lovely thing to do. And oh, I'm wow. just so glad that I'm so glad. I hope I get a chance to see you when I'm there. Um, absolute welcome. Anytime you want to come to this country, you just come on down. And now that you've got uh, relatives here, <laughs> you, don't, you don't need an excuse. No, it's been uh, terrific to catch up with you. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. God bless. Thank you. You too. Take care. Jimmy Webb uh, was fantastic to speak with him and uh, I'm hoping to uh, to be at the show when it's uh, in Melbourne on the 7th of December because you know, I just think he's one of the great songwriters. I do too. And a nice fella. Yeah, very good. And a nice fella. All right, speaking of nice fellas, Les Gock and Mark Holden. Ah, what a combination. Probably never seen them in the same room together at the same time, but that doesn't mean anything. Uh, We're going to have them on on this particular show uh, in the coming weeks. And, you know, that's that's probably two of the biggest acts from Countdown in the 70s, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Hush was a massive... Um, uh, Boney Maroney was such a big hit. Um, they've done. They, they did some glad all over. Oh, they did some great. They did some great songs that they that they wrote as well. Um, and yep. and Mark, uh, he well, he literally burst on the scene and then turned into television star, movie star, bloody everywhere, soap star, yeah, yeah, all those things. So uh, we'll uh, we'll catch up with those two in the, in the coming weeks. Deborah Conway is going to join us to have a chat. She's got a book out. She's written a memoir, so we're going to talk about that. Uh, and uh, who was the other one I was going to mention? Was Dave Warner from the suburbs? Oh, look, yeah, Dave Warner. They're they're a uniquely Australian act. Um, I remember working with him at the Pier Hotel in yeah. Frankston. Oh, God. <laughs> and uh, we, were, we were just sort of starting out. We were doing the support. And he came out and had this song called Kookaburra Girl. <clears throat> right. And he went, she's a kookaburra girl. <laughs> and just kookaburra noises. <laughs> and I thought that is, it's it's so bad, it's brilliant. <laughs> um, so, you know, everybody Knows whack off Normie, you and your mate and that one. But <laughs> the Kookaburra Girl, we might have to play that on the show okay. when uh, we interview you, Kev. We'll ask him about the, uh, the you know, the where that came from, the uh, source of inspiration for him, uh, for yeah. Kookaburra Girl. Oh, might be about 17 <laughs> beers perhaps, who knows. <laughs> it could be, every possibility I would think. Uh, now, Kev, just quickly. Yes, I'm, I'm back at work this week. Thank goodness for that. Oh, really? Probably, probably a month off. So, I'll just quickly tell you that here in Queensland, um, on the 20th, I'm playing at the Cleveland Sands Hotel, oh, Koala Tavern. I don't know it. I don't know anything. But that's with me and Scotty and our fabulous band. And then uh, on the 21st, we're playing at Kings Beach Tavern. And then on the Sunday, it's an Arvo show at the Wallaby Hotel. So if you're in Queensland, Wallaby Bob's, bit bored, Wallaby Bob's, come on down. And the uh, be great. Kings Beach, Kings Beach is one of the great beaches of all time to to go and have a swim and have a surf. Oh, what a ripping beach that is at Noosa. 
Oh, yeah. Well, they're all pretty good beaches up here, I tell yeah, you what. They certainly but, are. I'll um, rub it Yeah. Uh, now, if you're driving up to uh, to go to see Brian uh, on the 20th, the 21st or the 22nd at any of those gigs, the Cleveland Sands or the King Beach uh, Hotel or the uh, Wallaby Bobs, uh, drive carefully uh, and you may want to think about giving our friends at Murcotts a call and brushing up on your driving skills because it might be just about that time you need to have it done. Well, that's right. And uh, it's there's lots of specials and bargains and Christmas treats coming up, so it's a good time to get involved with Murcotts by ringing them on 1300 576. And jump on the website, murcotts.edu.au, for all, uh, all the details that you need. Thank you, Brian. Uh, good gigging uh, this coming weekend. Oh, thanks, Kev. Break and, a leg, um, as they say in the showbiz traditions. Well, that's right. And I hope you have – what's on you for your week this week, Kev? Uh, another busy week of all sorts of things in the podcast universe, uh, including I think a new episode coming very soon of A Little Less Conversation, A Little More Elvis with myself and Mark Andrew uh, talking to some of those amazing wow. people who, uh, who frequent the world of Elvis and have over the years, uh, from security guards to hairdressers to jewellers to cousins. We've got them all lined up. Oh, that's a good one. When just when just think of this. Well, episode, episode one's this? episode one's only just gone up, so that's with Sam Thompson, who was uh, Linda Thompson's brother and uh, oh, yeah. part of Elvis's personal security team. So that one's uh, that's the first one we've got up, and uh, we've got uh, a, a girl who spent you know years literally uh, at the gates of uh, the uh, the uh, Elvis's residence uh, as a fan, and then. Got to, got to know him better and uh, not not in any uh, surreptitious way, just got to become friends with him. So she talks about her stuff. So that's coming up in the next episode. And yeah, we've got all sorts of really interesting people coming. Well, well, have you heard about my new podcast? What's that? It's called A Little Less Conversations with the Beatles. In fact, there's no <laughs> conversation with the Beatles. Um <laughs> It only goes for 30 seconds, I'd say. Hi, welcome to the show and uh, no news this week, so see you next week. Yes, beautifully done. Uh, well, I look forward to hearing that. Uh, oh, it won't take much of your time. Exactly. Thank you, Brian. Uh, have a good week. Thank you, Kev, and uh, you have a good week too. I'll be listening to you, Elvis Podcast. That's That sounds pretty good to me. Good stuff. Talk to you soon, mate. All right, mate. Bye.
Just didn't 